Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're excited about what God is doing and uh, what God has done, what he will do, what he will continue to do. And, um, and I'm, I'm excited about seeing some new leaders rise up in our house. I'm just sitting here thinking about new leaders, new people that have just want to do something amazing for God. And so I'm, I'm super excited about that. We had our leadership retreat this weekend, and, and um, we brought in our good friend, Michael Brodeur. A couple years ago, uh, Seth Dahl said, hey, you need to check out this guy. He's got a pastor's coaching thing. Little did I know he was just launching it. And uh, I got to be on the front end of that. It was amazing still doing that. And, um, but he's just really uh, invested in uh, helping churches become all that God has for them to be and helping people become all that God has for them to be. And so we're fortunate to have him with us here today. And so I want to introduce my friend Michael Brodeur and, uh, from Redding, California. Let's welcome him this morning. Thank you so much. Well, hi, everybody. Had a great, great time with your leaders from the church this, this week. Uh, we got to hang out in a beautiful camp, got to eat some wonderful food. <laughs> it was awesome. And, uh, no, camp food's always good. You know, it reminds you why you don't go to camp that often. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, but, um, no, we had a great time, and, and I was just so honestly impressed with the leaders. There's about 30 leaders from the church there, and just the the amazing people that God has given you as a congregation to support you in your journey in Jesus. Just amazing. And so, and I was just mostly impressed by the amount of fun they had with each other, the amount of laughter, the amount of play, because one of your highest values is fun here. And so I'm just uh, really excited to be a part of you today and over this weekend. I get to fly home tonight, so that two-hour time difference is going to make a big deal to me as I get home. But anyway, I'm happy to be here. But um, I want to introduce myself a little bit before we get into the Word. Um, my name is Michael. I'm married to Diane. We've been married 37 years. We have seven children, and uh, we raised them on the mission field of San Francisco, which has less Christians per capita than India by the way. And so that was our life. And uh, all my kids are now grown and out of the house. My wife and I just sold our big house and moved into a little cozy apartment. So we're enjoying life. She often travels with me, but wasn't able to come on this trip. But we did just get like a month together in Germany in 12 different churches. So that was fun. But um, yeah, so I was a pastor in San Francisco for 33 years. And uh, at the end of that time, we moved up to Redding, California. Uh, about four of my kids were in school up there at the BSSM school. And uh, we went up for a summer sabbatical, and the Lord spoke to me and said, you're done. And so we shifted, and he says, now it's time for you to enter into the season I prepared you for. And uh, what I want to talk about today is destiny. I believe that each one of us in this room has a destiny in God. We're going to break that down and talk about that a little bit. But I believe that sometimes in some of us, destiny unfolds in a, a series of, of, of stages. And um, I had this experience when I was a young believer. Like, I moved to San Francisco with this group to plant a church in 1977. I don't know, probably a few of you weren't even alive in 77. But I moved there with this group of about 15 people to plant a church. And one of the ways that we did it was by, first of all, starting with house ministries. I don't know how many of you remember back into the Jesus movement, but there was a lot of house ministries. We basically 
gave 100% of our income to the ministry because that was discipleship. If you were a follower of Jesus, you gave it all. And so we got this big house, and we actually had several houses, but this one was a four-story Victorian house in San Francisco. And we packed it out with bunk beds, and we took in people off the streets, and we cared for them. We'd feed them dinner, you know, uh, do a Bible study, put them to bed, get them up in the morning, do a Bible study, kick them out so we could all go to work, make money. And then uh, that was our our life, basically seven, you know, times a week. We would do that cycle. And... um, but anyway, I was a co-leader of the house by this time. I was maybe, I don't know, 22 years old. And, um, and we got a call from our ministry headquarters. And they said, uh, Michael, there's a guy coming to town, and we want you to take care of him. He's a very special man. Uh, he's from India. He's planted about 1,000 churches in India. And you need to you know, welcome him and sort of give him a place to stay. So they told me where he was, when he was coming in. I went down to the bus station because that day he didn't travel with planes. He traveled humbly on a bus, and uh, I, you know, I, I didn't know even what to look for. But, you know, I got to the bus station, looked around. I couldn't see anybody that resembled a man from India. But then behind a, a, a mailbox, this very short Indian man who lo- walked a little bit like E.T., and uh, he came out, and, and, and he kind of locked eyes with me and did that thing, you know, where you, oh, I think I recognize you. Are you the one I'm supposed to recognize? And, uh, and I kind of did that back and forth and, and then introduced myself. And his name was Paul Pillay. He just died about six months ago, an amazing man of God. I think he had planted over 10,000 churches in North India by this time. But anyway, when I met him, he was just starting out. No, he had actually been going for about a, a decade or so. But um, anyway, so I took this guy to our house, and we got to, I got to know him a little bit. You know, just got to hear his story a little bit. But that night, he shared in our Bible study, and he, you know, had a little slide projector and showed slides. You guys remember slides? And um, he showed these slides, and... And uh, we had a group of, you know, people off the streets that night, and he gave an altar call. And this one couple kind of, you know, when he said, do you want to receive Jesus, they raised their hands, and they had just come off the streets. They weren't married, but they had just come off the streets that night, and they raised their hands to receive Jesus. And so, anyway, they, they, you know, he calls them over, and they start talking, and he just, you know, goes through an explanation of the gospel, and then he praises them to, to receive the Lord, and he says, please write down your names, because, you know, I want to pray for you in the coming weeks. And so they wrote down their names, and his eyes got really big, and he went to his briefcase and pulled out a piece of paper with their names on it, and he said, the Lord had given me your names two months before, and I've been praying for you ever since. So I thought, Wow. That, if, if that's not a miracle, that'll do until one comes along. And I thought, I thought, this is a pretty good opportunity, you know. And so I was pretty amazed by this guy. And so um, anyway, we spent some of the evening talking. And then we put everybody to bed. And he slept in this room with one guy who had really a bad foot disease. I don't know what was wrong, but it just smelled horrible. And, and I was, like, really embarrassed to put this, you know, this very special guest. Another guy snored horribly. And so anyway, but the next morning, everybody got up except him. And so we fed him all breakfast, kicked him out of the house. And I was sitting there with my co-leader in the house. And uh, all of a sudden, he comes down, you know, about an hour late. And he comes down and says, um, how did you sleep, I said. And he said, well, not very good. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> it was a, just a, a miserable night because of his guests. And, uh, and he said, no, that's not the problem, actually. I sleep on village floors in India. No, the Lord kept me up last night talking to me about you. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the camera does that weird thing. <laughs> and, and this hush came in the room. And it's like, okay, what are you going to say? And he said the weirdest thing. He said, I've called, the Lord says, I called you to be an apostle. 
Now, you've got you to gotta get the picture here because I'm this 22-year-old. Like, I have a little bit of a scruff down here, and uh, I have long hair, and I'm just barely saved, you know, just like by the skin of my teeth, you know. I mean, I've been a believer maybe for about three years now, but, but just hanging on for dear life, you know, because I didn't know if this thing was going to stick or not, you know. I mean, I remember when I met my first uh, Christian who had been a Christian for like three years, and I thought, wow, how did you do it? That's phenomenal. I can't believe, you know, that you made it three years. And, and you know. Now I'm like, I've been a believer 43 years, and I'm just thinking, okay, <laughs> he settled into this thing. But anyway, and he began to prophesy over my life. And he says, but you've definitely called to this calling, but it's going to take you a while to get there. He started talking to me about my calling in God. And he says, I'm here to make your call and your election sure. And he began to prophesy, and he said, the first thing God wants you to do is you're supposed to be an evangelist, and he wants you to do at least a season as an evangelist. And then he's going to call you into the pastoral ministry, and you're going to pastor for at least 20 years. And if you don't pastor for 20 years, you're not going to earn the right to be in the real position God has for you at a later point. And he sort of mapped my whole life out for me. But not only that, but then every year, twice a year, he would come and spend a week with me for the next 30 years. I'm not kidding you. And this guy would come and, you know, he was, you know, he crowned our marriage when we finally got married. He was there for, the, you know, each age of my children's development. And, you know, I would go out with, on him with ministry trips while he was raising money for his mission in India. We went over to India a number of times and spent time with him. I got to preach at his 40th ministry year anniversary where there was members of parliament there in, in New Delhi. And just the guy, you know, he, he, he would actually sponsor all the Billy Graham training. I mean, he was very... I, I received my doctorate there. I mean, I was in this amazing situation where I came just as a preacher in the normal thing, and he surprised me and said, Michael, we've been, you know, we're the largest accredited Bible school in all of Asia, and uh, we have the privilege of giving out one honorary doctorate a year. We've chosen you this year. And so here I am sitting there while these missionaries, you know, the, the trainees, the graduates from the Bible school are walking down the, the, the center aisle singing uh, the song, in the highways and byways, I'll be somewhere working for my Lord. And, and literally, like, one of these guys is going to die this year. And probably about half a dozen of them are going to be horribly beaten, you know, for their faith. It's like, and here I am. I'm going to go back to, you know, the United States and watch TV and sit on my comfortable couch. And I just felt so humiliated being in front of these amazing men and women who are giving everything for Jesus, you know. And I just thought, wow. And, and uh, but here's the deal. Each of us has a calling in our life. And you may not have been called out by a prophet and prophesied over, or you may not have had some kind of radical experience or heard a voice from heaven speaking to you, but I guarantee you that Jesus created each one of us in this room for a purpose. And I want to go to a scripture right now that I believe we're going to unpack, and you're going to see how much that word applies to you. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, to... Uh, book of first Peter, actually second Peter, if you can get over there with me. And if you're, how many of you bring your Bibles to church? I know like in the age of smartphones, I really miss the flipping of pages. You know, it's like there's this something so precious. Can you guys just flip your pages for a moment for me? Come on, just like make some noise with your Bibles. And, um, and so while we're doing that, let me just mention, I have a few books here. 
One is called Destiny Finder, which is about the subject today. And you guys can get that, and I, I just hope you enjoy it. This, this book I wrote with Banning Liebscher and Bill Johnson, and it's called Revival Culture. It's about preparing for the coming harvest. And if you guys are interested in what God's doing on the earth and how to begin to... Uh, to really contextualize the gospel for the emerging generation. I really encourage you to get this book. In fact, I want to give this to Matt here. <laughs> bless you, bless you. And I also want to give one more book away too. Oh, he's not here anymore. Okay, I'll have to save it for later. But anyway, so, but here's the deal is I have this other book. Let me just show it real quick. Keys to Church Health. This is kind of the stuff that I'm doing right now, but I'll talk about it more as we get into it. But right now, I've been on a journey. This guy didn't know what my journey was going to be, like when he prophesied over me, but I was just starting an evangelistic ministry at that time, and that's how I met my wife. She came up as, you know, to be part of this outreach we were doing. We had about 500 believers at the outreach, and uh, we had a big riot over that weekend. It was pretty crazy. You know, a couple thousand very angry San Franciscans came out against us because they didn't like the gospel, and so um, I met my wife. I held her hand for the first time, and we got married. I mean, it was just awesome, and, uh, you know, but I did evangelism for about 10 years, and then about in the seventh year of that time, I started a church. And I pastored as a senior pastor for 25 years. And then at a certain point, about eight years ago, the Lord said, enough. You're about to step into the reason I really called you. That which was prophesied, gosh, 35 years ago or more, actually it's almost 40 years ago, was now going to start coming to pass. And the question I would ask you is, what about you? I'm not anything special. I'm, I'm just a hippie who got saved and started following Jesus. What about you? You may not think that there's much going on, but I guarantee you that God has placed a purpose on your life. So let's turn to this passage, and here it says this. It says, chapter 1, 2 Peter, verse 10, it says this, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and your election sure. Be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if, so, uh, if you do these things, you will never stumble, and so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many of you want to experience more of God's kingdom? How many of you want to have a greater revelation of who God is in his kingdom and how that kingdom can come to earth and how we can be used by God to heal the sick and cast out demons and change this world and break the power of evil in this world and release the presence of the living God in our cities and in our, our neighborhoods? I mean, I'm longing to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's verse 11. If you do these things, you will not stumble, but you will enter into the kingdom of heaven heaven. Well, what's the key to that? The key to that is to make your call and your election sure. Okay, now let me talk about this for a moment. The word call is an interesting call word because it actually means to be summoned. It means to be summoned like a king summoning you, sending you an invitation that you really can't say no to. Okay, God has called you. Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, you've been chosen too. You are elect of God, that God has selected you to be with him. Now, when this word calling is used or call is used, it really refers eventually to heaven, to being with God forever and ever and ever, which is your destiny. Do you guys know that? Hello? If you're happy, notify your face. 
Um, no, come on. Like, this is, this is smile-worthy. I get to go to heaven, and I get to be with God forever and ever and ever, and the things of this earth are going to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. And you know what I'm talking about? We get to go to be with him. Okay, but eternal life doesn't begin the moment you die. Eternal life begins the moment you're born again. You guys understand that. You've been born again. If you're a believer today, you've been born again. That the spirit of the living God is coming in and awakens something inside of you that is eternal and will last forever and ever. That you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been empowered by the living God to serve him in dynamic ways. But that journey into heaven started the moment you said yes to him. And so you have a call that didn't, doesn't start later. It starts now. And you need to understand and grow into that call because this is what God... So I believe that in that call, you have a destiny. You have a purpose. That God formed you for a purpose. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before ordained we should walk in them. Okay, what is he saying there? Okay, we are his workmanship. In other words, we're being worked on by God. But the word workmanship is actually the word poema, which denotes a kind of a poem. It's actually the word from which we derive the word poem. It's, it's you're your God's song he's writing. You are God's painting he's painting. You're God's sculpture he's sculpting. In other words, you are a masterpiece of God's creation that Jesus is at work in your life to fashion and form you into someone very, very special. Okay, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And you can say, well, yeah, everybody's supposed to do good works, and we're all Christians, and we know what the basic good works of Christianity are. We read our Bibles, we pray, you know, we, uh, we fellowship with one another, we share the gospel with our friends, we tithe. You know, we shouldn't forget the tithe, because that's very important, you guys. But, but no, I don't believe he's talking about the generic, general good works that all of us are supposed to do. I think he's talking about very specific works, and how do I know? Because he says in the very next passage, works that God before ordained that you should walk in them. Now, this raises a bit of a challenge in our minds because we don't know if we believe in predestination or not. Okay? Hello? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, literally for 2,000 years, there have been believers on both sides of this equation fighting over whether God preordains everything or not. You know what preordination is, is that God sits at the beginning of time like a computer programmer, and he writes all the code for all of humanity for all time, and then he just presses return, and it unfolds without, you know, by his sovereignty, but without really our participation at all. And obviously, that's a ridiculous epitomization of Calvinism, but, but you guys understand, okay? But on the other hand, we have the Arminian perspective, which sort of in its most extreme epitomization believes that God in his sovereignty, gave free choice to human beings. Okay? You guys know, are you following me? This is theological, but I know. But hang in there for a moment because it's going to make sense in a second. Okay. So the, the, at the extreme understanding of that, God doesn't really know what you're going to choose. And because God can only know what is knowable, he doesn't really know what you're going to choose. Therefore, God's sitting at the end of time constantly being surprised by your choices. Oh, my God. I mean, he doesn't say my God because he is God. But he, he says something like, oh, I didn't expect that. Or, and, and we know that can't be true, right? Because he knows the end from the beginning. So both extremes are kind of illogical at, the, at their extremes, right? 
So I believe that the actual problem with trying to understand destiny or predestination is really not a matter of is God sovereign or not or does human beings, do human beings have choice or not because those things are both true. We know those things are true. I think the problem with understanding this is the problem of time. You know, C.S. Lewis said that time is a line on a page. Okay, but God isn't on the page. Hello? You guys understand that? Okay, this is the way I like to put it, that God exists outside of time, but he interacts with all time at the same time in his time. <laughs> okay, did you get that? Okay, I didn't get it. I'm still trying to figure it out. But God exists outside of time, but he interacts with all time at the same time in his time. Okay, because God has a time. I mean, God, there's actually time in heaven. It's just a different kind of time because they, they wouldn't be able to say holy, holy, holy because they have to say that over a period of time. They'd only say, oh, and that would, be, that would be it if there was no time in heaven, right? <laughs> okay, so there is time in heaven. It's just a different, no, we're, we're stuck in time in a certain way. So if you think about this keyboard right here and 88 keys, and, you, and you, we're stuck in a chromatic scale going up, and we can't go backwards, and we can't jump ahead. So we're kind of bound in this thing called time as a construct, and we're moving ahead. But God is not bound by time. In fact, he is the pianist who sits down at the bench of time, and he cracks his fingers, and he's got 100 fingers on each hand. Okay, and he's able to play the low notes and the high notes at the same moment in his time. Does that blow your mind? <laughs> okay, and so he's able to say, okay, you know, he can play you right now when you're a twinkle in your parents' eyes. He can play you right now when you're forming in your mother's womb. He can right now, in his time, he can actually play that note. He can play the note of you, you know, feeling that sick feeling in your stomach at kindergarten going to school for the first day. Or, you know, the day you met your spouse or the day that you had your first baby. He can play that, he can play today, right now. But he can also play you 10 years from now at the same moment in his time, because he's outside of time, interacting with all time at the same time in his time. And the good news there is that he can work all things together for good to those who love him. He can, if we play a bad note, he can actually play right over that note if he wants to. Okay, in other words, he can redeem everything. The scripture says that, you know, he, he actually works all things according to the purpose of his own will. And so he's constantly writing the music of your life right now. And so God wants you to actually achieve certain things. In fact, Psalm 139 says, He wove you together in your mother's womb. Do you guys believe that? If you believe that, put your hand up high. He wove you together. He chose you from that moment that you were conceived. And he wove you together in, his, in, in your mother's womb. And the scripture says, so interesting, it says, all my days were written in his book when as yet there were none of them. How does he do that? How is it that you were chosen in him before the foundations of the world? Because he exists outside of time. I mean, the foundations of the world were a long, long time ago, but he exists outside of a long, long time ago. And so he can, Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. How could that be? We know he was slain in Jerusalem, and he was slain roughly about 2,000 years ago. But he was slain also from an eternal perspective in the very mysteries of time before the foundations of the world. You guys get it? It's kind of cool. But anyway, so the point is, is that when this guy prophesied over my life, 
and said, I want to make your call and election sure, he was saying, you have some things that God has determined that you're supposed to do on this earth before you go to be with him forever. And my position is, is that every one of us in this room has exactly the same command. Every one of us is called by God and has been fashioned by God to do certain things that no one else can do in quite the same way. And if you fail to do it, in many cases it will be left undone because God's not going to bring in a substitute because that was your responsibility. And that's very scary in one sense because if I fail to discover and do what God has called me to do, and the body of Christ suffers to some extent as a result of my failure to do what God's called me to do, then I'm actually inadvertently harming you by not pursuing my destiny. And not only that, but I also will be put in a position where in the pursuit of my destiny, that I will stand before him someday as the, as the parable says to us, and I will have been given certain things in my life, talents the scripture talks about, or, or minas, and if I fail to invest those appropriately to bring about the maximum outcome for the glory of the master who entrusted me with those things, I will either be received with grace and say, well done, good and faithful, enter into the joy of the Lord. Or I will be said, oh, you wicked servant. You, I, I invested so much in you, but you failed to do what I asked you to do. Now, it's a parable, but again, it gives us a, a window into God's heart that God cares about this, that God created you for more than just sitting in churches on Sunday and going to heaven someday. He created you because he wanted to partner with you to transform the world. But not to partner in some generic sense, but very specifically, each one of us, understanding that some of you are called to glorify him in business, some in the political realm, some in culture, some in church ministry, some in creativity, some of you in art, some of you, you know, um, in, in family, raising the most godly, beautiful children, that each one of us has a destiny that God has ordained, and he actually is sitting excitedly saying, let's do it together. See, God doesn't want to do your destiny to you, he doesn't even want to do your destiny through you. He wants to do your destiny with you. He wants to partner with you. And really, because I, I, don't, I don't really believe that God wants to just, you know, sort of sit there distant from us. I think he wants to play with us the whole time. I think he wants us to be engaged with him. And I think that's the beauty of being a friend and no longer a slave. You guys understand that? So let's look at this passage because here's what it says. There's, there's a word at the very beginning of verse 10 that I want you to look at. And it's a very important word. And if you've heard preachers preach very much about this kind of a word, you know, I've heard this said a thousand times. If you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. Hello? In other words, therefore is the beginning of a thought that actually harkens back to everything that was set up to that moment. So in order for us to understand verse 10 and understand the, the call and election sure reality and the entrance into the everlasting kingdom reality that God is talking about right here through the Apostle Peter, we have to go backwards. So let's go backwards a little bit and let's look at, I'm going to read verses 2 through 8 or 9. It says this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God 
and Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which you have also, he is also, I'm sorry, by which has also been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will never be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." How many of you want to be fruitful in life? (laughs) I mean, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you're going to bear much fruit. We were created for fruitfulness. He says, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, when he's talking about fruit, he's not talking about just one kind of fruit. Some of you are apple trees, and some of you are cherry trees, and some of you are grapevines, and some of you are kiwis. And you know what I mean? It's like some of you are, are bananas. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, look around the room. You can actually point out each other and just say, oh, you're definitely a kumquat, you know? <laughs> it's like, I mean, seriously, you guys, we're all different, and we're all called to bear the fruit that we are and not try to bear the fruit that somebody else is. You may be the best apple in the room, but I don't need to be an apple to be with you. I can be, we can be a fruit salad together. That's what, that's what church is. You know, church is a massive fruit salad with all of us kind of chopped into little pieces, and we hang out together, and we make an incredible flavor, right? Isn't that true? Okay, so, so here he says this. Grace and peace be multiplied is just a very common greeting, but I believe we need to take it very literally. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. But he goes on. As his divine power, verse 3, has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, this is a very important statement because his power has given us. Now that's past tense. It's already happened. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, everything that we need to become everything he's called us to be has already been put in our bank account. Amen. Now some of us have forgotten the, the passcode. You know, we've forgotten the, the four or six digit, you know, access point, right? The pin number, as they call it. But it's already in your bank account because what Jesus did was so absolutely, overwhelmingly effective that all that we need to become everything he's called us to be is already put in store for us, okay? That we can become partakers of that incredible gift that he's given us. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and to being like Jesus, godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So he has called us to himself, and we are in relationship with him. He's been revealing himself to us in the spirit of wisdom and revelation, showing us who he is to equip us. But he's also been depositing into our account this incredible wealth of goodness that he purchased on the cross. So you have really, in a sense, and I don't want to say this harshly, but you have no excuse to not pursue and develop exactly what Jesus has called you to be and do. You have no excuse not to do it because it's already been purchased for you. It's just a matter of you appropriating the finished work of Christ. 
Okay, but he goes on because there's a process of that appropriation. It's not just a random thing. We don't just sit down and let it happen to us as if it was some kind of accidental thing. No, we're called to participate. In fact, there's a word that's used in verse 10 that needs to be highlighted. It's the word diligent. Be diligent. In other words, you're responsible. And if we go back to also verse 5, we see the word diligent again. But let's look at verse 4 before we go there. He says, by which, by the knowledge of God, you have been given, we have been given exceeding great and precious promises. Okay? That by these or through these we may be partakers of divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in this world through lust. In other words, what he's saying to us, he's saying, God in his incredible wisdom and grace has given us promises. And you say, oh yeah, I know we all have promises. We're going to go to heaven. We get the promise of the Holy Spirit. You know, we have a new identity in Christ. We've been born again. We've been forgiven of our sins. We have a new nature in Christ. And those are all great promises. And all of those promises apply to each one of us who are believers today. You guys get that? And if you're not a believer today and you just came to church, God called you here on purpose because he wants to talk to you about the purpose he created you. Okay? We'll get to that later. But if you just look at this, he says, by the knowledge of God, we have been given precious promises. I don't believe that this is talking about the general promises that all of us share. I believe this word right here, verse 4, is talking about specific promises that are to you personally. See, God gave me a promise of a certain destiny. Do evangelism, do pastoral ministry for 25 years, and then you'll be ready to actually step into a more apostolic role. God gave me that set of promises, but that's not your promise. You've got to find your promise. What did God promise over you when he was weaving you together in your mother's womb? What was the, 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 the days that were written in his book for you before you ever knew of any of them? In other words, we are, we are responsible to discover what God has ordained over our lives, and then to begin to apply ourselves diligently to actually pursuing that thing and becoming the person that he's called us to be. And this is like an incredible challenge that's before us. This is, in fact, I believe, the actual reason for our existence. He didn't save us merely to have us sit in church. He saved each one of us to be world changers. He gave each one of us a role to play in the overall manifestation of Jesus on the earth. And that's what you're called to do and be. Okay? So let's, let's look at the text a little bit more. He says this, that through these great and precious promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature. Because as you pursue the promise of God in your life, as you go after it, guess what? It's not easy. It's not instant. It takes a, a, a challenge and, and, a, and a pursuit, and that pursuit actually purifies your inner being. Do you guys know that? You become more like Jesus the more you pursue the purpose for which Jesus created you. And that transformation process is in pursuit, not of some lofty idea of what a, a good Christian is, but in pursuit of the actual specific things that God died to release inside of your life. Okay, so let's, let's get back to it then. He says this, partakers of divine nature, and it also keeps you on track to escape the corruption in the world. Because the world is constantly seducing you and trying to draw you back into not just sin, but to things that are also good things, but they're not the best things. 
You guys understand that? So we've got to be able to make choices about that. We've got to be able to keep prioritizing Jesus. In fact, uh, you know, Matthew 6.33 says so clearly, if we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, everything else will be added to us. But if we seek everything else first and put the corrupt things of this world first, we will actually sabotage our destinies. And so it's important for us to get this straight, what he's saying here. Okay, so look at verse 5 now, because this is where it begins. We're going to talk about seven steps of development, because every one of us needs to develop. We already have the resource, but we haven't used the resource yet to fully uh, actualize or fulfill our destiny. And so he gives you some steps, I believe, that are crucial to this process, seven steps. So it says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Okay, let's start there. Faith is the foundation of this entire process. Faith is where it all begins. By faith, we're saved, right? Hello? Anybody given any indulgences recently? No. We're saved by grace through faith. And that's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, we, faith is our foundation, not just for salvation, but for the receiving of the Holy Spirit, right? For the receiving of forgiveness. But it's also the basis on which we receive the gifts of the Spirit. You guys understand that? That there's different gifts and there's different gift sets in the Scripture. In Ephesians 4, there's five leadership gifts talked about, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. In Romans 12, there's seven gifts that really define your personality style to some extent. And some of those are repeated in, in words that from the first group I just said. And then 1 Corinthians 12, where we have the gifts of word of knowledge, word of wisdom, healing, you know, miracles, gifts of tongues, discerning of spirits. And I could tell you many, many stories of how I've had to step out, and I'm not super, you know, uh, awesome man of God kind of faith guy, but I, I just, simple obedience, I've been able to really operate in almost every one of those gifts, you know, and see God do something amazing. And faith is the foundation of all of that, but faith alone is not enough to get you to your destiny. How do I know? Because the text itself says you have to add to your faith something. What does it say? Add to your faith virtue. Well, gosh, if faith was enough, then I wouldn't have to add anything, right? No, he's saying you actually do have to because there's a developmental process. You're moving from a place of spiritual infancy to a place of spiritual adulthood where you take responsibility for your destiny and you walk it out with, with courage, with strength, with boldness, and with intelligence, and you actually complete the things that God's called you to do on this earth. But that requires that you actually become developed in your faith to a higher level. So the first thing is add to your faith virtue. What is virtue? Well, the way I define it is virtue is noble intention. In other words, I intend to be, like I believe, now I'm going to do something about my belief. I'm not just going to simply believe in God. The devils believe, the scripture says, and they tremble. Okay, I'm going to actually live out my beliefs by, by intending to be a different kind of person. Okay, so it's divine, it's, it's noble intention. I choose now, I could go uh, 360 degrees, but I choose to go towards Jesus. And I choose to walk this path towards him. Okay, that's the first step, is taking your, the basis of faith and taking a step into intention. I will become the person that God created me to be. 
Okay, but that's not enough by itself because you have to add to virtue knowledge. In other words, I need to be equipped. And where does equipping come from? It comes from this book. And if you're not spending time in the, you know, seven days without this book makes one week. (laughs) Anyway, kind of back to Bible camp there. But anyway, you guys understand what I'm saying? It's like, in other words, you've got to be a consumer of Scripture. I think for the last 20 years, I've made it a point to read the Bible through every year because I don't want to just cherry pick the stuff I like. I want to know the whole God of the whole Bible. I don't want to just, you know, but it, but it takes, wow, it takes a lot. It takes 15 minutes a day. But guess what? At the end of a year, you're going to be so pleased that you saw God from that massive, you know, 300 thousand foot you know level and you were able to see the whole picture of who he is but knowledge is not enough in other words knowledge has to be applied in our life for it to work jesus said don't be hearers only but be doers of the word and that requires the next issue which is to move from knowledge to self-control in other words i've got to actually govern myself to do the things that the scripture says now you say well that sounds a lot like religion to me well, I, first of all, I don't even like that phrase altogether, but, but no, it's not religion. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, ultimately self-control. In other words, if you don't have self-control, you, you're not operating in the Spirit at all. The ability to govern oneself is a true fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so I need to move from mere knowledge, because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, if I'm walking in a lot of knowledge, I can actually do damage to people unless I control myself. And so I've got to have self-control. So what I'm doing here is I'm saying there's a set of steps. First of all, faith to virtue, virtue to knowledge, knowledge to self-control. But what's next? Self-control to perseverance. Because guess what? (laughs) I heard a statement one time that said that God's never late, but he's rarely early. (laughs) Anybody relate to that one? (laughs) God's never late, but he's rarely early. In other words... He doesn't operate on our timetable, you guys. In fact, oftentimes he lets us stew a little bit before he shows up. Do you guys ever notice that? And so it's not like, oh, I have knowledge and now I have self-control and now God's going to do exactly what I say. I'm going to snap my fingers and God's going to, no, it almost never works like that. I mean, every so often somebody wins the kingdom lottery and they actually get exactly what they wanted at the moment they, they prayed for it. Okay, but most of the time, and the reason why is because God doesn't want to just, you know, give us a fish every time we're crying out. He wants to teach us how to fish. God doesn't want to just meet our needs. He wants to transform us into need meters. In other words, that we are different kinds of people who produce different kinds of results in the world because he's trained us in the intensity of real life. And so it's important for us to understand that as we have noble intention and then we add to that knowledge, then we add to that self-control, we have to also add perseverance. We have to press through the difficulties. We have to press through the barriers. And most of those barriers are inside of us, you guys. We've got to press through the inner limitations that keep God at bay or that keep us from operating the fullness of who he's intended us to be. Okay, but even that's not enough. Perseverance is a good thing, but ultimately, if you persevere, then you can move from perseverance to godliness. In other words, the process of pursuing a promise, that this promise actually produces divine nature in me, because when I hook my heart to a promise, and then I start pursuing that promise through the stages of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control, actually, transformation starts to take place inside of me. I start to become more godly. Because I'm living my life for a higher purpose than just meeting my own selfish needs. 
I'm no longer worried primarily about my own well-being, but I'm starting to worry about his purposes and, and your purposes and how can I be a part of your life and his life and how can we work together to see his kingdom come and his will be done. And that produces a godly outcome in my life. You guys get it? There's a transformational developmental process that we need to engage in order to become the people that he's created us to be. So ultimately, once we've kind of come into godliness, there's this neat thing that happens called brotherly love. And that's what we're learning in church. That's what we're learning is, is how to get to know each other because I know that Jesus didn't give me 100% of who he is. Some of what I need to become who I'm called to be is not in me, it's in you. Now, I can get some from the Word. I can get some from an encounter with God or some raising my hands in worship. But guess what? I believe that there's different delivery systems in the kingdom of heaven, that the Holy Spirit has different delivery systems, and one of those is fellowship. And if I'm not spending time with you and if I'm not allowing the gifts in you to augment the gifts in me, if I'm not giving my gifts out so that you can be more complete because of me in you, if we're not working together like a, a, a 1,000-piece puzzle to bring the picture of Jesus to our community, it's not going to happen. We've got to be able to join forces and really realize that, that my inheritance is not going to, I'm not going to get it straight from heaven because some of my inheritance has been invested in you. And if I'm going to get that piece of Jesus that I need to be fully who I'm called to be, i got to start spending time with you. That's what church is. That's why we fellowship with one another. The Scripture says very clearly that um, actually it says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that we would know three things. The hope of his calling, which we're talking about today. The, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I got an inheritance but some of my inheritance is actually in your bank account. And that's what we mean when we say we want to draw out the gold in one another. It's a very self-centered activity. I need you in my life because I want to be fully who Jesus has made me to be, and I'm not going to play games with that. So I need, to, I need you. You complete me. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, but let's go on. Um, okay. Apparently, you guys don't watch movies, especially old movies, very often. But anyway, brotherly kindness, but there's even something about brotherly kindness, and that is agape love. See, brotherly kindness says, I serve you, you serve me, we serve each other, and we get to the destination together. But love says something even more than that. Agape says something more than that. It says, I serve you and love you even if you don't love me. And even if you're harmful to me, I'm going to bless you. And even if you hurt me, I'm going to serve you. Because that is the highest love, and Scripture says so clearly that greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his brother or sister. And it says, actually, at the end of this whole process, these seven steps of development, because ultimately love is the highest place of development. And I don't care what your destiny is, whether it's in the marketplace or whether it's in politics or whether it's in the church or whether it's you know, just in the prayer room interceding. I don't care what it is. If you don't have love, it's all just sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. You guys understand that? We've got to let love be the highest expression within all of our ministries. But it says in verse 8, if these things are yours and abound, if these seven steps are something you're constantly applying, you will never be barren or unfruitful in the kingdom. You will always be bearing fruit. On the other hand, it says in verse 9, he who lacks these things is short-sighted. 
even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his own sins. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. Isn't that amazing? What an incredible passage of Scripture. So how do we do it? Well, I just want to give you three quick things as we close. How do we do this? Well, first of all, you've got to have it out with Jesus. You know what I mean? Like I would encourage you to set aside a half a day or maybe a, you know, an hour a week and wrestle with him. You know, Jacob wrestled with the angel. He says, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. I think that you first of all need to go to Jesus and say, what is my calling? I need to make my call and election sure, but I don't know what it is, God. Can you help me? Can you come and speak to me? Can you ask God questions and then have a pen in your hand and write down what he tells you? I mean, it's, the scripture says, I want to inquire in his temple. What does it mean to inquire? I ask questions. You actually can build a relationship with God where you can ask him a lot of very specific questions. And guess what? Surprise, he'll answer you. You know, he may not answer you that moment, but he's going to answer you. It might be, you know, 3 o'clock the next morning in a dream that he answers you, but he's going to answer you, but you've got to stay there. You've got to persist in his presence. Knock and keep on knocking. Ask and keep on asking. God will reveal your destiny to you, but it requires diligent approach. So that's number one. The second thing is that you absolutely need uh, mentors. Paul Pillay became a mentor to me, and he spoke into my life for 30 years, changed my life completely. Who's your mentor? Okay, and, and a lot of times you used to say, well, I don't know where there is a mentor. Well, then find one. You can actually find, and, and you know, the, the science of mentoring has actually changed. It used to be that we thought, okay, I need one mentor in my life. No, actually the word that's being used now is the word constellation of mentors. You know what a constellation is? You guys seen the Big Dipper? Okay, there's seven stars in the Big Dipper, but there's one North Star. In other words, I need a primary mentor in my life, but I actually am drawing from several different mentors simultaneously because each one of them has something to add to who I am. You guys understand that? So I'm not just, oh, I'm not just glomming onto one person and becoming codependent with them. No, I'm building a constellation of mentors. But guess what? You also need a community because nobody can find their destiny apart from community. You've got to be connected to one another. You've got to be part of small groups, ministry teams, expressions where you're actually doing life together in a powerful way with your brothers and sisters. And guess what? If you're doing that with godly intention to get the knowledge you need, to actually employ the self-control and persevering through these different steps that we talked about, you can actually build a destiny that I believe will glorify God and bring about the entire fulfillment you're longing for. I believe that there is no higher purpose in your life than to discover and fulfill that for which Christ created you. And I do also believe at the same time that there's no greater tragedy in life than to stand before Jesus having never discovered who he created you to be. Okay? So I'd like you to stand with me.